Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, my partner in crime for this series, is the great, the good, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. How are you? I'm doing just fine. And how about yourself with all your travels? You keeping just, yourself sane? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm doing my best to keep myself sane. The world is trying its hardest to take me the <laughs> other direction. <laughs> but so far, I'm winning. It's uh, Yeah, I think we're into stoppage time, and it's 1-0 to me, but I could give it a, give a goal away any minute the way things are going. <laughs> now... Mate, we have we have a returning guest again, which is always good fun to have someone to come back so we can we can talk about what they said the last time. But this time, our returning guest is uh, Edward Chancellor, and Ed joined us um, in the early days of the Endgame actually to talk about yep. monetary history. And at the time, he mentioned that he was in the process of writing a book, which he'd almost completed. Uh, and he told us the the title of the book, "The Price of Time," which we both thought was just a fantastic book title. And now here we are, fast forward, and that title has become actually a book you can hold in your hand and read. And uh, Ed very kindly sent us both a copy, which uh, I have to say, Bill, I, I loved. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I did too. And uh, it's it's always fun to talk to somebody who's got a a firm grasp of history and put things in perspective. And as we learn over and over again, there's really nothing new under the sun. No, no, there isn't. And, uh, and, and Eddie is one of the best chroniclers of financial history that, that I've found in modern times. So, um, so what do you say we, we get him on to talk about 5,000 years of monetary history? Okay, let's do it. Edward, welcome back to the end game. Thanks for doing this. Um, it's been a little over a year since we last spoke. Yeah. Or perhaps was it, Year and a half, two years. I can't quite remember the exact date. It was it was a while ago, but when we did speak, you told us you were in the process of writing your next book, and you you revealed the title, The Price of Time, and we both said at the time, Bill and I, that we couldn't wait to read it, and we've now had that chance, and I have to say, bravo, what an excellent, excellent book it is. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and um, we can discuss some of the issues yeah, issues. I think that's, that's, that's the perfect way to frame this because they are issues. Well, let, let, let's give people that, that don't know the background of the book. Let's talk about your reason for writing it and um, kind of the impetus of that and, and what you hope to achieve by putting your thoughts down on paper. Well, after the financial crisis, I was working in Boston for GMO, the um, investment firm uh, with, with Jeremy Grantham. And two things, really. One is, you know, at the time... Obviously, the Fed had taken Fed funds rate down to close to zero. And sort of strange things seemed to be happening in the markets. And the other was as a sort of project within asset allocation team where I was working, I felt that we didn't, uh, as investors, really understand bond markets particularly well. We were sort of more equity oriented. And um, I went to see Bill and my mutual friend, Jim Grant in New York, and said to Jim, you know, are there any good books on on interest? And uh, Jim said, you know, there, there's a book by this fellow called Conard who wrote an introduction to interest in the 60s. But as Jim said, he didn't find it very useful. And 
then um, you know, Jim Jim said, you know, well, I have been observing interest rates for 25 years. So I quipped that he hadn't been forecasting them very accurately, <laughs> which point Jim then <laughs> let off an expletive. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> as we didn't really understand interest and the financial world was um, going a bit awry, it seemed to me, you know, that in order to properly grasp what was going on in the financial world, but also in the economies, it, it was important to have a better understanding of interest. And that, that was really how this book got going. The title of the book, The Price of Time, is such an evocative phrase to be confronted with. And I think people don't really think about interest rates in that context, you know, because what we really are doing with them is, as you say, pricing time. And obviously the price of time for the last 10 years or so has been zero. You know, and if, and if you don't yes, have... And, a, yeah, and, and so Grant, as I mentioned, you know, there's been criticism of charging interest or what used to be called usury um, going right back to ancient Greece. And, and the philosopher Aristotle uh, was a vehement in his denunciation of interest, saying that you know, money was created to be used in exchange, not to increase uh, in lending. And what I argue is that um, Aristotle genius that he was, uh, didn't consider the time dimension. If, if, if I were to give you, you know, $100 and demand uh, $110 back immediately, that would seem a pretty unfair transaction. But if I always give you $100 and ask $110 in, in, in two years' time, it seems quite reasonable because you know, if you have that money, uh, you, if you have the use of my capital, there are things you can do with it, and besides, uh, you might you you might abscond with my money, in which case I need some <laughs> some uh, compensation for the risk I have in lending. So there are um, profound reasons for charging for the use of, of time, and not least of which is that all economic transactions take place over time. So the acts of lending and borrowing and valuing and investment. These are all time-related activities, and something uh, ha has to be put in place to make sure that that time is well used, and and that that something is is an interest charge. Yeah, it's funny because um, you know from those early days, the the reasons around not charging interest seem to be mostly religion-based, you know, that, that mostly they came from the religious uh, scholars of the day, etc. But really, you know, modern times, I think it's obvious to any of us that have grown up in the last, let's call it, couple of centuries, that you know, time is the most valuable thing we have. So to, so to not charge for it is patently ridiculous, frankly. Well, I mean, there are two things. One is that in a primary agricultural economy and a non-capitalist or non-industrial economy, uh, then interest charges often are excessive um, because there's no growth in the economy. Uh, and 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 they can set, you know, in, in ancient Greece and, and across the ancient world, excessive interest charges could lead to debt, bondage and slavery, uh, as it can do in parts of uh, the developing world today. However, once you have a, a capitalist economy in which the loans, uh, much of the loans are going to people who are using them for profitable uh, 
purposes, uh, then it's fair enough that the uh, owner of the capital should have some share in the potential profits uh, to be had from it from from its use. As you traced the, the the price of time throughout history, give us the overarching trajectory of that, because obviously we've seen interest rates, and there's that fabulous chart from Richard Siller's book of you know, five thousand years of interest rates, which apart from a few brief spikes have generally trended down throughout time. Walk us through what you found. It's difficult to be you know, dead certain about the trend of interest. Uh, um, you, you mentioned that you know the famous Homer and Silla's uh, history of interest rates. What they find is in the ancient civilizations, such as Mesopotamia, you know, where interest was first recorded in third millennium BC, is that interest rates follow a U shape. They come down, they sort of trough and continue in the trough. And then as the civilization collapses, <laughs> they tend to rise quite sharply. And that was the case in, in Babylon with Greece, uh, with Rome. And you can also find it with Holland in the um, 17th and 18th century. Uh, so there is this U-shaped pattern. There is some argument that interest has been trending down. And one reason it might have been declining uh, the more financial intermediaries you have, the more bankers, the easier it is to borrow and, and lend. That will you know, ease the friction of lending and bring down interest. However, you know, Dick Siller, you know, the co-author of the history of interest, he, he argues that there isn't really a, a genuine long-term trend. He thinks that sort of 6% <laughs> bond yield is, is the norm over time. And he also points out that in the 20th century, we saw the lowest interest rates, well, obviously, in recent years, we've seen even lower, but we also saw the highest interest rates in history. So what you could say is that rather than a sort of long-term, secular, multi-century downward trend, we've seen um, increasing volatility of interest. And that, that's definitely come with the rise of, of fiat currencies, of paper money, uh, which, um, as we all know, are inflation prone. Ed, I'm curious about one thing, or many things, but one thing in particular, and that is, in the end, in your conclusions, and the thing after the conclusions, it seemed like you were sounding an optimistic note, uh, you know, that somehow the people that had created kind of the mess that we're in now would get it right, either via digital currency, or somehow the people that pursued some of these crazy ideas would maybe get religion, if you will. And I don't see any signs of that. And I don't see how we could get there without a crisis of which one seems to be brewing now. But could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so Bill, I completely agree. You know, I ended the book with a postscript, which I wrote you know, towards the end of last year. And, you know, obviously, you know, observing the extraordinary financial events that surrounded the sort of COVID lockdowns and uh, money printing and massive deficits of 2020, 2021. And then I, mean, I really end the book inciting the English economist, contemporary of Maynard Keynes, Dennis Robertson, where he says, you know, just as you know, something is needed to you know, put a price on tea or whatever commodity so that buyers and sellers know what to produce and, and what they're going to buy. And so a price is needed on money so that lenders and borrowers can transact. And the question is, 
in a world of fiat currencies, and, and when we talk about a fiat currency, we're really talking about a sort of slightly hybrid system in which you have both a central bank making money by you know, expanding its balance sheet, or you have commercial banks that make money by lending loans. And in the modern world we live in, there is no real regulator on the amount of money that can be created and therefore the interest charge. And there is this notion mooted by um, Thomas Meyer, who's a former chief economist of Deutsche Bank. Thomas is sort of Austrian economist by persuasion, apart from Jim Grant, very few people would actually advocate a return to the 19th century gold standard. But what Thomas was mooting is a digital gold standard in which I mean, he's suggesting a central bank digital currency that could only increase by a, a, a fixed constitutional amount every year, let's say, sort of four or five percent, and that that would create a, a finite currency. And then the interest rate from borrowers and lenders meeting would be, so to speak, closer to a free market rate. The trouble with this suggestion is that you'd have to get rid of the conventional banking system. And you can only do that, Bill, if the banking system collapses and you have to really build something from scratch. So I, I think you're quite right. Um, one could sort of scratch one's head and think about how to change the world, but you're only going to change the world when um, you know we're in a state of dire necessity. It's very clear that we have these cycles that repeat through time. And we run into the same things over and over again. Obviously, the, the advent of a digital currency is a change to all the cycles that you that you witnessed and chronicled through the pages of the book. But this idea of a system falling has repeated many, many times throughout history. And, and generally speaking, it has been the case that we have returned to some kind of of a gold standard. Do you think this time around with a digital alternative and with potentially, as you've just outlined, the end of a traditional banking system, do you think this time, quote unquote, may actually be different? And if so, what does it look like this time when the system does reach its natural end? Well, I think the catalyst for change would only come about through, as I said, a severe economic and financial crisis. And you know, inflation has now left the stables. <laughs> and one thing that inflation can do if it becomes uncontrolled is it actually wipes out the capital of the banking system. And that's, that's really what happened in Germany in the 1920s. And American economists tend to ignore this because Americans are often too centered on what goes on in America. But the Great Depression really started with the collapse of the Austrian and German banking system in 1930 and 31. And if you look at the balance sheet of the first big bank to go bust, Credit Anstalt, big Austrian bank, it didn't look sort of highly leveraged by today's standards, but its capital had been immensely weakened by the hyperinflation. So I suppose if we would get to a situation where inflation really were to run out of control, do more severe damage to the banking system than, say, it did in the 1970s, then you might be in the position for a reset of financial practices. And bear in mind that you know nowadays the you know, fintech, uh, with its capacity to do 
financial transactions from smartphones. So over here, you know, we have companies like uh, Revolut and Wise. I don't know what the big popular ones are in, in the States, but you can do really many of the um, you know, your traditional banking activities without a conventional bank. And one could see that there could be a shift to a new type of banking system that wasn't, as I say, fractional reserve or you know, what we call fractional reserve banking is really highly leveraged, <laughs> highly leveraged uh, banking system. You could have a monetary system you know, where your deposits were essentially unleveraged. And then if you wanted to enhance your returns, you could lend it to you know, different types of you know, whether they private equity or hedge funds or ETFs or whatever, where the leverage could take place. And under those circumstances, then if there were a failure, it would be nice to think that the failure would be sort of localized, so to speak, uh, rather than systemic. And the advantage, as I say, was that one can conceive of a world in which interest rates are set freely and in which central bankers who cannot, even with the best will in the world, and even with the right model for understanding an economy, uh, which incidentally, I don't think they do have the right model, but even if they did have the right model, they would never be able to get the job done because you know, just as you can't expect a central planner to price any commodity or good because they won't have the information necessary. So um, I think it would be nice if one day we were to move to a more market-based system setting interests, which would also, as I say, have the advantage of possibly being a more stable system too. But Ed, it strikes me that while the banking system and its leverage has certainly been a problem, obviously 2008 being a perfect example. Uh, before that, it was in the early 80s when the American uh, big city banks, New York banks had all the exposure to South America. But it seems to me now the problem is more the central banks. And we have a situation where both, it looks like the euro and the yen are in real trouble, 25 basis points for the tenure in Japan, and the hopeless mess <laughs> the ECB and the powers of B in the EU have created both from an energy standpoint and now with Italian bonds starting to blow out. So it looks to me like we're heading into a dicey period where most of the problems can be laid at the actions of the central bankers. So it seems to me that the problem is them and not the banking system, although something in the banking system may cause them to act. I mean, how do you wrestle with that point of view? Um, no, I agree with you. I mean, some people think my book is a polemic against the central bankers, which it's not really. I mean, it's trying to do more than that. But on my shelf, within my eyesight, I've got Greenspan's bubbles <laughs> along, <laughs> alongside, <laughs> alongside. Uh, I think I've got a whole shelf of Greenspan. Uh, you know, it's next to Alan Shrugged. <laughs> and you know, I've got a, a maestro. Yeah. <laughs> and I've even got Greenspan's fraud. <laughs> so okay. I, you know, I, I, I have a library of books critical of central bankers, and, and I agree with you. Um, to let them off lightly, one could say that they're set with an impossible task, and in particular, say the ECB, the European Central Bank, you know, has to impose one interest rate off a variety can't quite remember how many, sort of nearly around 20 different economies, which is an absolutely impossible task. And 
then they've been handed, or in the case of the Fed, adopted these inflation targets, which I think, uh, as I describe in the book, are misbegotten, but have been used uh, as an excuse to take interest rates down ever lower. Now, I think why the central bankers really can't be let off the hook is that if you told me to do something that I thought was irresponsible, and that was my mandate, I would um, be pretty vociferous in explaining why I didn't think it was a good idea. And, and clearly that, that, that hasn't been the case with central bankers. And they, they seem to have, and I think this is um, you know, one, uh, you know, one point of the book, is to observe the unintended consequences of their actions across a number of different dimensions, whether it's the allocation of capital or the valuation of capital or risk-taking or international capital flows, but, but also the inequality that has arisen. And I argue the monetary policy has been one of the prime drivers of inequality in recent years. Ed, it's, it was interesting, you know, as you go through the interest rate cycles that you cover, talk about the consistencies that you found, because you, again, in, in your conclusions, there are consistencies in periods of high rates and consistencies in periods of low rates. We never seem to learn from either, but but talk a little bit about those consistencies at both ends. No, that's, that's a good point, Grant. And, and so one of the consistencies one finds, and this is something that very much differentiates the bond markets from the equity markets, is these extraordinarily long interest rate cycles or bond, what we call you know, bond market cycles. And uh, they tend to last somewhere between sort of 35 and 55 years. And the uh, recent interest rate cycle commenced in the in, uh, I think, sort of 1981, thereabouts, uh, and, and ran for 40 years. And I'm assuming now that the bond bull market is behind us. And if that bond bull market is behind us for good, uh, then that would have been a sort of classic bond bull market. I mean, it's much more extreme because you, interest rates in the US long-term bond yields started at a much higher rate than ever before and fell to a much lower yield. So it's definitely the greatest bond bull market in history, but its length is quite average. Um, another thing um, while we're at it, and I also point this out towards the end of my book, is no one ever actually calls the end of the bond bull market right, uh, right. accurately. They, they don't see it coming. I mean, I'm not saying no one. The danger is that you know, people who try to call a turn in the bond bull market, they get it wrong. We won't mention any names, Bill, but you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> certain people <laughs> who observe interest rates called for the turn in the bond bull market, I think, you know, 2003, four, probably, you know, 2012, wherever. And the danger is one becomes a bit of a stopped clock. And, and I found, you know, from an investment perspective, it's very interesting. You know, equity investors, you have value equity investors, and they will sort of, in fact, be implicitly calling the equity market uh, when they think it's you know, overpriced. But you don't get their equivalent in the bond bull market. There are no value investors. I mean, you can have people you know, trading between different currency bond markets, but there are no value investors in the bond market because if you get out of these great bull markets before they 
turn too early, well, then you're done for. And I, I can think also, you know, Bill Gross, for instance, that, you know, the late Pimco's, uh, you know, former Bond King, he, he made a few sort of egregiously a bad cause of the end of the of the bond bull market. I'm not saying I could have done any better. I just realized that you can't do it. However, having said that, there are certain things that point towards end of bond bull markets. And one of them, interestingly enough, is a breakdown in globalization. You know, globalization and bond bull markets seem to go together. And one reason that that would be the case, I think, is that during periods of globalization, Basically, developed countries, they're sort of importing uh, cheaper foreign labor and um, they're doing it, obviously, by buying goods, although periods of globalization often coincide also with uh, mass immigration. And that dampens uh, domestic wage growth and it also dampens inflation. So if you have weak wage growth and weak inflation, then uh, interest rates will tend to trend downwards and then when globalization is interrupted, or uh, in the case of the US, they started you know, restricting immigration in the late 19th century, then actually interest rates start to rise. And then inflation likewise, if, if inflation comes back into the system, as, as it's doing now, and as it did after the Second World War, uh, then actually that also uh, serves to levitate interest. So, so that, that those are some commonalities. And the the other one that I suppose I stress is that how when interest rates sink to uh, abnormally low levels, that seems to be the monetary background to all the great speculative bubbles in history. And that consistently runs from the tulip mania in Holland uh, of the 1630s, you know, right through to the everything bubble that we've just seen over the last couple of years. And let's talk a little bit about the parallels you found, um, because the period that everybody goes back to, because it's really our only recent memory of similar circumstances to those which we find ourselves in today, which is the 1970s. So talk a little bit about the parallels you found as you looked at the price of money and the price of time through that period and the lessons that you took away from that with regards to our current circumstances. In the book, I go back a bit earlier. The strongest parallel I find to the current day is actually the period of the so-called Mississippi bubble in France in 1790 and 1720. It's very well recorded, the Mississippi bubble, but I look at it in in a slightly different perspective. I describe how this Scottish projector arrived in France called John Law in the second decade of the 18th century and established a bank that then became France's first national bank. And his aim was to replace gold money with paper money and to bring down interest rates. And he did that by, you know, what I call the the first experiment with quantitative easing. He wouldn't have called it that, which (laughs) involved actually John Law doing a large amount of self-dealing because he, aside from being the central banker, he also owned a large share and managed the largest company in France, Mississippi Company. And he used uh, the central bank to uh, buy shares in the Mississippi company and allowed speculators to borrow at 2% against their stock in order to buy more shares, which incidentally is exactly the same rate our friends at Robin Hood were lending to their 
long-term investors. You could get margin loans at Robinhood for 2% last year. And that you know, helped fuel a great bubble. And then Law had this brilliant contemporary, a French banker of Irish extraction called Richard Cantillon. And Cantillon observed Law's uh, scheme at first hand. And initially he was in favor of it. But then he realized that all this money printing was bound to collapse the, the French currency on the foreign exchanges. So actually Cantillon made a fortune shorting the French currency relative to sterling at the time. And then he later wrote a treatise on economics in which he describes law system and this uh, so-called, you know, what I call quantitative easing, money printing to buy securities. And what Cantillon says is it's all very well for a national bank to embark on such ventures, but once they do it, there is no escape. There's no one to sell the securities to. And then the other point he makes is that, and this is really insightful, is he says when this first happens, the money really doesn't work its way into the economy, but is used only for financial transactions. And therefore, it fuels the asset price inflation. But later, the money seeps out into the wider economy and causes a, a broader inflation. Now, that's really what happened with law scheme over a process of 18 months. But really, we've had the same um, dynamic, but it's actually played out over a period of sort of 12 to 13 years. But it's taken much longer this time. But Cantillon's observation that these were dangerous operations <laughs> that were likely to explode with a bomb was absolutely, I think, you know, spot on. And what's worrying, Bill, you know, in terms of you know, criticizing central bankers, is if you look at any of the you know, academic economists writing about law, is they keep on saying, well, law was a genius. He established the principles of modern central banking. And you're thinking, wow, <laughs> the man <laughs> who blew up, you know, France's national bank created and then burst the greatest bubble in French history, which actually put the French off banking and central banks for uh, the rest of the 18th century and led to this tradition where French peasants kept all their wealth in gold under the bed uh, because they didn't like anything to do with paper money. That The idea that law should be the model for modern central banking is really quite extraordinary. But, but there it is. I, you know, I can point you to the books and, and saying that central bankers should imitate him. Well, I mean, that's essentially what they've done. I mean, they wouldn't say it that way, but that's what QE has been all about and zero interest rates and all of these things. It's a maddening experiment that's gone on for a decade, which seems too long until you start thinking in terms of history. And it's not that long. The real, I guess, important developments are how we get through the bumpy patch we're headed into and 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 what comes out of that. It just continues to mystify me how these central bankers can have so much credibility given the fact that they've created the problems, they haven't fixed them. All they do is kick the can when they do what they do. And then on the other hand, now they're all mad at the ECB and the BOJ, but they love the Fed who does the same thing. I mean, it makes my head hurt every time I think about these guys and their credibility. But Yeah, but Bill, I, I think it's going away. I, I think that the infatuation with central bankers is over. Go back to Greenspan. Why was Greenspan so popular? Really, because... He was credited with the capacity to conjure up household wealth through the bubbles that you wrote about and then protect 
investors from the downside with his Greenspan put. And over the last 25 years, we've seen one household wealth bubble form after another. And the remarkable thing was, and as I'm sure you're aware, is each bubble in, in aggregate is measured by you know, the Fed's surveys to, of, of US household wealth. Each bubble was bigger than the one before. The bubble associated with the real estate boom up to you know, 2005, six, that was a bigger bubble than the dot-com bubble. But you know, at the end of last year, US household wealth had never been higher. Now, the other thing is this was done against the backdrop of relatively low inflation. And the central bankers credited themselves with delivering the low inflation, although there's a very good argument to say that actually inflation in recent decades has been an international phenomenon that was beyond the reach of the central banks. Now that inflation is back and the asset prices are falling, well, obviously there's less reason to be you know, slavish adulation of the central bankers. And the other thing, Bill, is I think it was you who wrote, I mean, people used to talk about central bankers running out of bullets. Do you remember that term? <laughs> and, and actually, they turned out to have much bigger armories than we thought. Isn't that true? I mean, you know, you know, 20 years ago, you know, we didn't dream up quantitative easing and forward guidance and and negative interest rates. And negative, let alone negative interest rates. <laughs> and now I think I mean I may say it too soon, but I think they have run out of bullets. And therefore now they're looking pretty powerless. And one of the things the governor of the Bank of England over here, you know, called Andrew Bailey, is a figure of complete derision as far as I can see. He just, you know, he says, oh well, don't blame us for inflation. It's completely beyond our control. Uh, if someone says, well, hang on a sec, didn't you just print a lot of money? He won't even discuss. <laughs> he won't even discuss the question of the relationship between the central bank's money printing to fund the lockdowns with the consequence of that money printing in inflation. So I think the central bank bubble has burst really for good. And good riddance to it, I'd say. Yeah, amen to that. Amen to that, exactly. Ed, you, you mentioned negative interest rates there, and I definitely want to come back to that because obviously that is some kind of aberration throughout the story. But I couldn't help leaving, having read the book, with this overarching sense that there's a, as you said, you mentioned 6% earlier on, but there feels like there's an equilibrium price of money. And the story that I took away from the book was this constant desire for men to lower that and a constant almost a, a natural resistance by time to be priced ineffectively and every now and again these natural forces would reassert themselves to push that price back up towards kind of an equilibrium value it really felt like it was just this kind of struggle of man against something it could never ultimately overwhelm and it would try repeatedly to get the price down but ultimately no decisions were ever made to restore it to its rightful place. It just felt like nature took that out of man's hand. Am I way off beam in that? Because if, yeah, if that's- I, think, I think that's an interesting way of putting it. Clearly there is a, a very strong lobby of powerful vested interests for a, a lower cost of financing. And that Wall Street 
loves easy money. And it's what, you know, bankers can do marvelous things when the cost of money is much lower. You know, it mints them fortunes. It pays them big bonuses from the deals that they do. When money is easy, you get more mergers, more flotations, more corporate issues. Governments themselves, you know, like easy money. I think of, I mean, Donald Trump was quite comic because, you know, he campaigned in 2016 criticizing the Fed for inflating what he called a big, fat, (laughs) ugly bubble. And he, but because he can't resist quite being candid. He says, well, I'm a New York real estate guy. Of course I like easy money. And then when he was president, you remember, he was always bashing the Fed if it had the temerity to add 25 basis points to the Fed funds rate. Trump wanted America to have negative rates. He thought that negative rates in Europe were a sign of European prowess. <laughs> I mean, that you would expect that from a property guy. You know, the property guys, you know, obviously love easy money. And and the trouble is that you know the lobby for a fair rate of interest is a very weak lobby because it's a dispersed lobby. It's it's your yeah, yeah. it's your man on the street. It's what I call at the beginning of the book the, the forgotten man. And so it's an unfair fight, the political forces between lower rates versus higher rates. But then the, the other part of your question is, does the problem eventually resolve itself? Well, I think there is something that if you, you know, move into a position, what you know, economists you know, call disequilibrium, you know, if things are, if there's too much debt and, and if asset prices are way out of line with fundamentals, so on, uh, and if capital has been woefully misallocated, uh, then the system will rectify itself, but not for anyone really intending it. It's not that some smart policymakers got out of bed uh, one day and said, "Hey, you know, we've been making mistakes, and we've got to do things differently." I think you know the, it's the exigency of the crisis, or in the current moment, uh, problems caused by the inflation that actually force the rectification to happen. Can you put into some kind of perspective this whole misadventure with negative interest rates? Because when you, when you study the price of time over as long a period as you did, it makes that stand out. Whilst not a complete exception, it's a remarkable outlier. Let's put it that way. What were your takeaways of this, this uh, misadventure with negative interest rates? I'm glad you picked this up because you know, a lot of people sort of gloss over the recent era of what we call you know ultra easy money without actually thinking about the negative rates. Well, go back to the premise of the book that interest is the price of time, that economic transactions happen over time, and that there should be some reward for it. The idea that you can actually set a negative interest rate is turning the world upside down. If you remember, I talk about right at the end about how this was, you know, we, we'd enter this sort of Alice in Wonderland world. And if you look at the writings of Lewis Carroll, <laughs> Carroll actually sort of envisaged all this. You know, in his writings, he has time going backwards and he has values being inverted. In one of his books, he even has someone called the Outland Emperor has a money act in which he doubles the value of money to make everyone prosperous. And unbelievably, Carol even invented his own cryptographic currency. <laughs> I mean, we we have definitely entered <laughs> the looking glass world. I never thought about it that way, Ed. Now, now it makes it almost humorous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's tragic comic. And as I point out, it's staggering. 
the person who came up with the idea of negative interest was this German businessman, monetary crank called Silvio Geisel, who was in Buenos Aires during the severe Argentine crisis of the early 1890s. And Geisel came up with this idea that you should have what he called rusting money, <laughs> that money should be stamped and you'd have to pay if you didn't spend it. And that, that really is the origin of the rusting money. Now, Geisel, he was beyond a communist. He, 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 he lived on a sort of commune. He was a, a briefly finance minister of the Bavarian Soviet Republic. If I think it's a bit weird to be taking monetary policy from John Law, you have to be on acid to be taking your monetary policy from Silvio Geisel. And, and the economists who thought about negative interest rates in the past as just thought experiments. They realized how absurd they were. Even you know, Paul Samuelson, you know, who raised really the sort of leading light for you know the orthodox economics today. But Samuelson had this sort of thought experiment. We said we, if we had negative interest rates that was very low, it would pay to level the Rockies in order to save on gasoline. In other words, it's quite clear that negative interest rates would lead to a profound misallocation of capital. And what we've seen in recent years, again, it's unbelievable. You know, in future generations won't believe how dumb we have been or, or how crazy we've acted. But you know, the idea that a Danish home buyer, you would take out a mortgage and receive a payment on your mortgage, isn't that bizarre that European companies with junk ratings have been able to borrow at negative yields, to be paid to borrow. A banking system to work properly requires some spread between um, you know, short-term rates and long-term rates, a yield curve. Well, the negative interest rates actually undermine the incentive to lend. They've been very bad for the European banking system. It's sort of like a cancer. And I, as I, I say, you know, if, if the invention of interest was the greatest invention in finance back five millennia ago, then negative rates are probably the dumbest idea in the entire history of finance. And, and we've just been living through it. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> I think you're right. The real question, I, I just keep asking myself, what's the other side of this going to look like? Because the good news is, I think in the next year, there are going to be enough problems that hit home. And uh, that I guess we'll get some sort of peak of what, what's coming next because it has to change. We can't keep doing this over and over again. Although I would have said that after 08 and that wasn't right. Yes, but we've moved on from that. And as I say, I think that, you know, we have, as the title of your podcast series suggests, entered the, the end game. And I think the one thing to bear in mind is there has been this extraordinary inflation of wealth. And I think, you know, at the end of last year, uh, US household wealth was around six times GDP. And it's sort of average wealth, you know, was probably you know, under four times GDP. And I'm afraid to say, I mean, there's something I've taken on board for myself for a long time, is there is no way that a society as a whole, that, you know, the aggregate of investors or households can avoid the collapse in marketable wealth 
over the coming years. I think that the wealth destruction is going to be, you know, something in the order of, and it's being conservative, um, one and a half to two times GDP in the US. And therefore, I think, you know, the task of investment, you know, we think of investment of a sort of compounding your wealth across time, but really the task of investment now is, is you know, uh, uh, what I think it's called Gerald Loeb wrote a book called The Battle for Investment Survival. And I think that book was written in the 1930s. And I think that's where we are now is, is investors have to set their sights really low <laughs> and say, you know, if you can sort of hang on to your capital, your spending power over the next five-year period, you've done reasonably well. I mean, like given the inflation running, you know, let's say close to double digits, and anyone who's made 10% return this year, nominal, thinks they've done a good job, yeah? But they've only just maintained their purchasing power. Most of us are going to have to realise that that purchasing power isn't going to be there. The other problem, um, which I do flag towards the end of the book, is that the issue of the manipulation of interest is not going to go away. There's massive debt out there, and a lot of it is government debt. And that really necessitates that interest rates, they may rise, but they will be kept below nominal GDP growth. And therefore, we're sort of in for a long period of financial repression. And one of the consequences of financial repression, or one of the ways in which financial repression is realized is by the state taking a larger and larger role in credit, in the allocation of capital in credit decisions. And that's really what happened in the sort of post-war period. But now I think we're in a more fragile state. And this is a thesis of my friend, I'm sure you know him, Russell Napier, strategist and author of the anatomy of the bear. And you know, Russell's view is, uh, which he articulates very well. And if you haven't had him on your show, he probably would be a good guy to have on your show. Um, we the, have, the, we have. Yeah, so he, he's talked to you uh, about the prospects of financial oppression. So I, th- I think that um, that's something to, to bear in mind. And one of the things that happens with financial oppression is it can necessitate capital controls. So the sort of era of the free flow of capital might not necessarily be maintained over the next decade or so. So now now we're sounding a bit pessimistic, but uh, (laughs) there are definitely things to worry about. I do, I have actually, I have one piece of investment advice to anyone who, investors who want to lower their portfolio volatility, the best way to do it is to actually not look at your uh, your your broker's statements, the, the less I, I've been doing that. The less frequently I look at the statements, the lower volatility I experience. <laughs> it's quite comforting. <laughs> it, it definitely works for a while. That's for certain. Ed, Ed, let me let me ask you um, as you look through, uh, as you walk just kind of through this story in the book, and it's, it's a vast and sprawling story. At every juncture, it seemed to me there were not only poor decisions being made by those supposedly responsible for the kind of safe stewardship of either economies or or money itself. But at every point in time, you've found meaningful quotes of people who 
called this stuff for what it was at the time, foolhardy, at, I think is probably the most polite way we can, we can think of talking about it. What is it, do you think, that makes those voices calling out this foolhardiness for what it is so unloved and so marginalised? Because that was definitely a sense I got throughout this. Yeah, the, the, the Cassandras. Yeah, the Cassandras, yes, uh, exactly. I mean, first of all, <laughs> you know, no one likes a sort of a naysayer during a, uh, you know, a, a no, true, market. But, 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 I mean, when you look at the, the people you quote, history has proven them to be very smart people, and they seem to be very smart people at the time. Yes. I mean, I think probably you know, one person who might be thinking of was the Chase economist of the 1920s called Benjamin Anderson, who was critical of the Fed's policies in the 1920s and you know, foresaw problems coming and sort of, you could say that, yeah, he's predicted the crisis. And, and do you remember the, that char- character, the Swiss banker called Felix Sommery? Yes, the Raven uh, Zurich, who, exactly. Who, who meets with Keynes in, in, Keynes comes and visited in 1928 and Keynes keeps on saying, you know, hey, what stocks should I buy? What stocks right. should I buy? And right. somebody says, you know, don't forget about stocks. You know, we're about to have a crash. And, and Keynes says, you know, there's, he's, he sounds just like a sort of broker, Keynes. You know, hey, there's no crash. You know, everything's going swimmingly. And somebody says, you know, the crash is coming from the gap between appearance and reality, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, seems to be a very good definition of a sort of bubble period. Uh, anyhow, um, so why do these people get ignored? Well, as I say, sometimes it's just, you know, the, the notion of, of when the bubble is going or when the bull market is going uh, and there's momentum to it, uh, people get sucked into it. It's uh, Crowd mentality is very intolerant of, of dissenting voices. There are huge vested interests behind these bubbles, you know, not least the bankers who are making money, as we discussed. The investors tend to go along for the ride, by and large, as Keynes said in, in the world of investments better to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally or what my old boss Jeremy Grantham calls career risk of you know of betting against a, a bull market too early you might as well just go with the flow and then lose your money along with everyone else and then you know there is this question of of, of understanding of comprehending financial systems and economies and during the credit boom period, I, I got quite early into the works of Hyman Minsky in, in around sort of 2004. And, and, and Minsky later became you know, well-known. He was much cited as the financial crisis occurred. But Minsky says at one moment, is in exasperation, he says, no one up there understands economics. <laughs> and in a way, one, I, I have this sense you know, that the academic economists who largely populate the central banks nowadays, have such simple and reductive models. I mean, they're mathematically complex, but, you know, they're, they're populated with, you know, um, you know, representative agents, representative companies. I mean, third idea that, you know, you can create a model of an economy with just one individual, one consumer, one company. Anyhow, I don't think these people understand the nature of, of economies and in particular i think this is true that you know, those of us who worked you know, actually in the investment world because we've been working close to the coalface 
we understand from experience, you know, what George Soros calls sort of reflexivity, you know, the how perceptions change reality, that there isn't really a, a distinction. The financial world and the real world are in a sort of reflexive relationship. Now, the economists just don't understand it. They don't understand finance. In fact, I remember talking to some Harvard economists who said that Soros had come in to give a talk at Harvard and all the economists had come along. And and actually, it was I think it was Paul Samuelson who got up at the end of the meeting and said, I don't understand what Soros is talking about. <laughs> now, you know, those of us who worked in investment, you look at Soros and say, yeah, I mean, what's new about this? <laughs> I knew, <laughs> of course he's right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's so obvious to those of us who've actually worked in finance that this reflexivity is the essence of how markets and economies function. So, Ed, are there, are there any voices today that you listen to? I mean, Bill White springs to mind for me immediately. But voices that that are out there that you've heard calling this for what it is in terms of uh, your research on the book that you think people should be listening to. I mean, you've mentioned Russell Napier, obviously, and as I say, Bill White is the first name that springs to my mind. But are there any others that people should be aware of? Um, so Bill White, you know, former chief economist, bank fitted at National Settlements, he really helped to inspire this book by uh, writing a paper in 2012 which I think it was called The Unintended Consequences of Ultra-Easy Money or something like that. And actually, you know, it's how sometimes there are people out there who who have ideas that are almost identical to one's own. <laughs> so in other words, what Bill thinks and what I think, you know, we're, we're completely on the same page. And I find the same way with the man who followed Bill White at the Bank for International Settlement, Claudio Borio. And I have great respect for Borio. And as for other writers, um, just looking at my acknowledgements, well, people don't really see it, but uh, Paul Singer you know, writes these yes. letters to investors. I think Singer's sort of right on the money. And I would say the same on the investment side about Seth Klarman. Yep. I think that Jim Grant, you know, as I say, I sort of owe tremendous debt to Jim. Again, you know, person who, you know, when I first started writing, finance, which was, you know, 25 years ago or so, a friend of mine you know, brought me a whole stack of grants, interest rate observers and Jim's early books. And that has influenced me tremendously. Again, I have to be slightly wary of the influence of Jim. And I actually, as I tell Jim, I tend to read his interest rate observers just once a year because I don't want to feel that he's always got there before me. <laughs> so I want to think independently of Jim. I like, um, you know, this, this, this guy called Andy Lee's, um, who yes. used to be at UBS, yeah. and he works with, he has these two colleagues called um, James Ferguson and Julian Garren, and they're called Macro Strategy Partnership, and I think they do really excellent stuff. And incidentally, I don't know if you've had, I mean, Lee's is very good on the whole energy and economy uh, question, yeah. uh, you know, which, as you know, um, you know, if you don't understand I mean, we've been talking about monetary matters and interest, but you know, if you don't understand energy today and in its role, then you you really are, you know at the back of the class. Well, I, th- I thought you were going to say if you don't understand energy, you should be a policymaker. But I, 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 I perhaps <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't want to we, we don't want to go on you know, a lengthy digression. No, uh, no but that, that is another world in which. Uh, 
complex models with uh, dubious forecasts have led to um, extraordinary dumb things. I'm sure you know my friend Albert Edwards at SOCGEN. Yes. There's another sort of ex-CLSA strategist, because that's where Napier came from, called Stuart Patterson, who does yep. um, China stuff. Well. I think he's he's good. And then, of course, he keeps a sort of weirdly low profile. But Doug Noland, have you ever come across Doug Noland? I have. Credit? I ha- uh, he yes, used I to have. work for me back in the 90s. It did it. Were you working for David Tice? No. No, no, no. He worked. It was like Doug was worked for me when uh, around 95, 96. And then I think he went from there. He went to go to work for David Tice. Yeah. So, Bill, were you at this sort of conference in 99 that David Tice read a sort of credit bubble conference where I was talking at it. Mark Farber was there. Doug Nolan was there. Um, Henry Kaufman. Do, do you remember? I don't know if you were there. Anyhow, no, I, um, I wasn't at that one. No. So, so, so Doug, I remember he gave us a talk about Alan Greenspan, where he talked about Greenspan putting a coin in the fuse box, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was a very you know striking metaphor. Um, and you know, Doug has stuck at it for you know for twenty odd years, doing this credit bubble bulletin, which is sort of blog. I mean, he he writes his commentary. Which you know, sometimes, I mean, if you think we've been doom and gloom today, <laughs> you, you, we're, we're positively easy listening compared to uh, Doug Nolan. Yeah. But actually, what he's done, which I think is, you know, I found a useful resource, is he actually provides links to all the good financial stories of the week. And I actually, you know, in the, in the course of this work, the only sort of research assistant I had was to get someone to you know, read 10 years of the Credit Bubble Bulletin and, and transcribe the notable events. So I think Doug, you know, he doesn't get much credit in the sort of mainstream press and he keeps, in a way, a low profile. But I think he's been performing a sort of a useful job these past decades. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Well, listen, Ed, it's been uh, well over an hour, and I, I thank you for your time. It's been fascinating, as always. So enjoyable talking to you. And the book, I have to say, is uh, is magnificent. Just let people know where they can find out more about the book and how they can follow you if uh, if there's anywhere that they should be tuning in to make sure they stay abreast of your thoughts. Um, so, well, the book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, is available at all good booksellers and on Amazon, needless to say. I've recently started my own webpage, edwardchancer.com. So perhaps um, I'll be uploading stuff to that. And, and then you know, I, I've been taking the summer off, but you know, from the end of this month, I'll, I'll be back to writing my column with, with Breaking Views, which goes on the Reuters website. Yes. Fantastic. Ed, thank you again for, for your time and and for the book. You know, the book is... Um, is is a wonderful gift for for anyone that gets a chance to read it, and I, and I would strongly encourage everybody listening to this to uh, to do just that because it's um it's it's a remarkable piece of work. So thank you, thanks Grant, and, and thanks Bill. Nice, nice to speak to you both again. Absolutely, congratulations on a well done effort, Ed. Okay, well, Bill, I'll see you um, in New York sometime. Yes, sir, you will. Okay, bye then. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Fascinating. You know, it is such a good book, but I, I have to say, Bill, as I said there. When I read it, I just couldn't help but marvel at how stupid we are. You know? I know. That's why I, I wanted him to be more forceful and less even-handed in his ending. That's why I brought it up. 
but um, he's trying to be an even-handed fellow instead of uh, yeah, being as, I, caustic, I, as caustic yeah. as I would be. <laughs> I, I know what you mean, but but I, I have to say, I absolutely picked up right the way through it just how wrong he thinks monetary policy has been. There's no confusing which side of the argument it's on, that's for certain. No, that's true. That's absolutely true. Yes. You know me, I got an agenda against these oh, yeah. guys. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I know. Some would call it a vendetta rather than agenda, but listen, you call it what you want. You call it what you want. I hadn't realized that Doug had worked for you in the 90s. That, that's new information for me. He had worked for a, a friend of mine named Gordy Ramon and who had a short fund, and he closed down his short fund. And then so Doug came up to Seattle, and he was here for uh, maybe about a year, I think, I can't remember. And he went from there uh, ultimately to Tice. Tice, yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, look, Bill, um, I say these conversations are, are always just so interesting, and, and so I haven't had the chance to read Eddie's book and, and talk to him again. It's uh, it's just the pic- the picture is, to me anyway, really starting to come into focus now, given what we're seeing with with the energy markets, with inflation, with the, the kind of food and energy related unrest we're seeing in places like Baghdad. This this end game, yeah, and, 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 and when, when you. Yeah. And so there's that crisis. And then now, I mean, the central banker's feet's going to be put to the fire. It looks like, I mean, when you when we watch what's happening to the euro and the yen and um, the actual end game may unfold over the course of the next year or so, we might have to like have a few more podcasts. It seems that way. It seems that way. things always get quicker towards the end, they say, right? Yes, they, they sure seem to. All right, matey. Well, listen, we'll uh, we'll be back uh, soon. We've got another couple of episodes already lined up and we will be recording those shortly. So uh, thanks once again to you for listening to us. Um, if you don't follow us on Twitter already, you can do that very easily. You'll find me at TTMYGH. I forgot, where am I? Uh, well, you always used <laughs> to be flat at cap. Flat Cap. Well, you always used to be. I mean, one day you may change that, but for now I'd keep it. Mate, okay. always a pleasure. I'll talk to you again soon. All right, great. Thanks. Take care, bye. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.